We are bringing to a close over the, this week and next week our summer series of sermons on a variety of psalms that deal with spiritual health. And this morning we're going to look at Psalm 139. We won't be reading the whole psalm. I'll read for you verses 1 through 12. Psalm 139, verses 1 through 12. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. It has the power to transform your mind, your heart, and your life. Please give it your full attention. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. When we might have the opportunity to talk to atheists, often we as Christians would like to point out to them that they don't live lives that are entirely consistent with what they say they believe. They say that matter is all that there is, and that everything that exists came into being by accident, and therefore there's no higher purpose in life. We hear that and we respond and say, well, you don't live that way. You don't live out that belief completely, do you? Because if all that you say is true, then there's no basis for morality. No basis for saying anything is really right or wrong. It's just about help, whatever helps you to survive. Survival of the fittest is really the only principle that people should live by. Now, an atheist hearing that does not have a good answer for that. And so probably what he'll do is try to say something to throw you off, something to deflect the argument. And so he might use that fallacy of saying, you too. You too are a hypocrite. You too, as a Christian, do not live according to what you say you believe. For instance, you say you believe that God knows all things and God is everywhere. Isn't that basic to your belief as a Christian? God knows all things and he is everywhere? Then why do you pray so little? Why do you worship so little? Why do you act differently at church than you do at home? Why do you talk about the people the way you do? God is omniscient. That's our theological term for it. 
God knows everything. God is omnipresent. That's the theological term for God is everywhere. And those are absolutely foundational doctrines for anybody who claims to be a Christian. There is no limit to God's knowledge. And he is not limited in any way by space. God knows all things. He sees all things. He's the source of all knowledge and truth. He cannot learn everything because he already knows everything. Secondly, he is everywhere. Lewis Burkhoff writes, he wrote the systematic theology that I was trained by in seminary. In his chapter on God's omnipresence, he says, God fills all space. He is not absent from any part of it, nor is he more present in one part than in another. He is fully present in all places, in all times, in every part of the creation. That means we believe that God is transcendent. In other words, he is separate from creation, unlike the pantheists. He's not part of the creation. He is transcendent above the creation. He's separate from what he has created. But he is imminent. He is in his creation. He is everywhere in his creation. Fully everywhere in every place. And that's against the idea of deism. That God somehow created the universe and then stands apart from it, a distance from it. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23 and 24 says, Am I a God? This is God speaking. He says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? So these are two non-negotiable beliefs in your statement of faith if you're a Christian. God is everywhere. God knows everything. My question for you this morning is to take that personally, that doctrine. How strongly do you believe that? How fully do you believe those two crucial doctrines? Wouldn't you live differently if you fully, 100% believe those things? Someone once asked the theologian R.C. Sproul, what is the big idea of the Christian life? What's it about? What's the purpose? What's the big idea of the Christian life? What's discipleship about? And the answer he gave was, as if you know R.C., he gave it in Latin. The answer he gave was coram Deo. Coram Deo. Which means in Latin, before the face of God. That's the big picture of the Christian life. To live your life in the presence of God. Before his face, in his sight, at all times, in all places. Psalm 139 deals with these two doctrines of God's omniscience and his omnipresence, but it deals with it in not some kind of abstract, theoretical way, but instead in a very personal way. David takes those two great truths of God's word and applies them to himself. Not just that God knows all things, but God knows me completely. And secondly, not that God is everywhere, in every place, but God is with me 
everywhere I go. It's a very personal devotional study of the subject. What does it look like? Well, this psalm is divided, the first half of it that we read is divided into two equal sections. Verses 1 through 6 contemplate God's comprehensive knowledge of us. And verses 7 through 12 contemplate his inescapable presence with us. Let's look at the first section. God knows us. I'm just asking you that very simple statement of faith. I'm asking you to dwell upon that this morning. God knows you. God knows you exhaustively. He says, oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. How well does he know us? Well, he says in verse three, 2 and 3, he knows when we sit down. He knows when we get up. He knows everywhere we're going, our goings in, our goings out. He knows all about them. He knows every step of our every journey. And he knows when we wear and where we lay down at the end. He knows all your habits. He knows all your routines. He knows all your actions. There is nothing that you have done, you are doing, and you, or you will do that he does not know fully. We didn't read the second half of the psalm, but there, beginning in verse 13, he says he's known you that way, that completely, that exhaustively, since you were formed in the womb. That's how well he knows you. Far better than you know yourself. And so one of the most important theological truths we have to learn when we come to the true God is that as important as privacy is to our lives here in this culture, there is no privacy before the face of God. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Scary thought, isn't it? Every thought that goes through your head, God hears it as clearly as if you were to shout it. Could you imagine having your thoughts all shouted? To the world, God knows every thought that goes through your mind. Verse 4 says that because he knows our thoughts, he also knows every word before we say it. I mean, it's scary enough to think that God knows all the words you've said. Think about the words you've said in the last day, the last week. God knows every one of those words. He heard every one of them. He's fully aware of every one of those words. And he's not kind of like a spouse. Like spouses know... You know, they'll sometimes finish each other's sentences because they can predict what their spouse is going to say because they know them that well. But with God, it's not because he's predicting what you're going to say. He knows your thoughts before you say it, before you've even formed the words to make your thoughts coherent. He already knows your thoughts as well as your words. That's how well he knows you. And then in verse 5, he says, you hem me in. You surround me, God. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now, at this point in the psalm, if, if you just read from the beginning and you haven't skipped ahead, at this point in the psalm, you don't know how David is saying this. Is he saying this shaking in his boots? Is he saying this terrified, horrified that he is exposed to this degree to the God of the universe? You can't hear the tone in the words, but he could be very easily, and we very much understand if he was terrified if he were saying these things. Because God is holy. 
David knew God. God is holy. And God is the one judge before whom all mankind will stand one day and have to give an account for their thoughts, their words, and their deeds. And that judge is a just judge who must punish every sin of thought, word, and deed to the fullest extent of his law. So is David cowering in fear of God's wrath and punishment? That's what Adam and Eve did. When Adam and Eve committed the first sin, they tried to hide from God. Their fear, the fear that drove their lives from that point on until they knew grace was the fear of exposure. And if you want to understand the psychology of fallen man, you need to understand that that's a powerful driving force in all sinners. The fear of exposure. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But you know what? David is not shaking in fear. He is not cowering before this all-searching gaze of God's knowledge. Look at verse 6. He's rejoicing. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. He's worshiping God that he knows him that exhaustively. He's worshiping God that he knows him better than he knows himself. I have an app on my phone that's called Find My Friends. I have one friend on there. <laughs> don't, don't feel sorry for me, that's intentional. That one friend is my wife. And when I open up that app, if she has her phone with her, which is most of the time when she hasn't misplaced it, when she has her phone with her, when I open that app, I can know exactly on the map where she is at all times. Now, if one of you had that ability on an app on your phone to know where my wife is at all times, that would be really creepy. <laughs> Even worse is some stranger had the ability to know where my wife was at all times, that would be even far worse than creepy. But my wife is comforted by the fact that I can look at that app and know where she is at all times. She's comforted by that. Why? Why does she rejoice in that? Why is she comforted by that? Because she knows I love her. Because she trusts me. She knows that I will only use that app for her good. That's the kind of knowledge that David had. I'm comforted, he says, by the fact. It's too wonderful to me to contemplate that you know me in my heart, as well as my mind, as well as my daily life. You know all about me. It is comforting. How could that be comforting to a sinner like David? A sinner who murdered the husband of the woman that he slept with in the act of adultery. How could God's all-searching knowledge of him bring him comfort? Well, this is the same David that a few weeks ago we studied in Psalm 32 when he said that David wrote these words, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. You see, David understood the covenant of grace. David understood 
the concept of the blood of the covenant. David understood that God chose for himself a people and he bound himself to those people by covenant. And he says, I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will give you the blood of sacrifice, the Passover lamb. I will give you blood to cover your sin. In other words, the death of someone else, the punishment of someone else for what your sins deserve. I will apply that to a perfect substitute. And that blood, that blood of the covenant will cover your sin. You will be forgiven. You will be reconciled to me. I will be your father. You will be my child. David understood that fatherly love of God through the blood of the covenant. And that's why he could confidently say, praise you, God, that you know me far better than I know myself. That leads to the second great truth that he addresses in beginning in verse 6, verse 7. If you miss the tone of the first six verses, you're going to misinterpret verse 7. If you misunderstand that tone to what David says in verses 1 through 6, you're going to misinterpret verse 7 where he says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? As we said, without the blood of the covenant, that's what everybody wants to do is to flee from the face of this holy, just God. But David's not fleeing. He's not wanting to flee from God. He's just rejoicing in the fact that he can't go anywhere. There's nowhere he could go where God isn't already there. There's no place in the universe where he could possibly find himself where God wouldn't already be there. Fully. In all of his wonderful attributes and his love and mercy. In verses 8 through 12, he explores the farthest extents of the creation, the farthest extents of the universe. He says, first of all, God is already in the highest heights and in the lowest depths. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. He's picking in the the Hebrew Old Testament worldview, he's picking the highest point of the universe and the lowest point of the universe. Heaven, or as Paul might call it, the third heaven, And Sheol, which was always seen as the lowest place of the created universe. Sheol sometimes means hell. Sometimes it's used that way in the Old Testament. But the concept of hell is only gradually revealed through the course of the Old Testament. I don't know to what degree David meant the word here. Sometimes it means more more generally the place of the dead. But if he does mean hell, in other words, the place where sinners who are unrepentant in their sin and die unrepentant in their sin go to pay for eternity for the sins that they've committed against this holy God, if that's the place he's talking about, you might say, well, it's inappropriate to speak of God being in hell, isn't it? Isn't hell the absence of God? Well, not quite. Hell is the absence of God's goodness. Hell is the absence of God's grace. But I'll tell you, there are people suffering in hell who wish that hell was the absence of God himself. Because God is very present in hell in his justice, in his wrath against sin, and is an eternal punishment of those who die in their sins. God is present in his justice in hell. And so David, he says... If I go to the highest point in the creation or if I go to the lowest point in creation, God is there. 
Then he says God is at the farthest east point as well as at the farthest west point. This is what he's saying in, when he says, I, if I take the wings of the morning, if I take the wings of the morning, in other words, he's talking about that light as it speeds across the horizon at the beginning of the day. If I take the wings of the morning, in other words, if I go as far east, if I begin at the farthest east point, and I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, which to him is the Mediterranean Sea and the oceans beyond, which to him, that's the farthest west. He says, I could go as high or I could go as low. I could go as far east, as far as west. Still, God is fully there everywhere I go. But again, you know, you think Jonah. Jonah tried to flee to the west, didn't he? He tried to flee to the sea, to Tarshish. He was running away from God. And guess who he met in the middle of the sea? God. Both in his disciplining force as well as in his mercy. But David here again is comforted. How do I know that? How do I know that, God is, that David is comforted by God's presence everywhere he goes? Verse 10. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That hand that God placed on him in verse 5, that hand is there to guide him, to provide for him, to protect him, to hold him. You see, this is the language of the 23rd Psalm. David said there that God is his ever-present good shepherd, leading him, providing for him, and protecting him. And then finally, he picks probably the most godless metaphor image from all of scripture when he talks about darkness. He says God is even in the deepest, darkest darkness. Even the darkness is not dark to you, he said. Several years ago, I, we, with my family, we visited the Ray Caverns down in Virginia. And one of the things they do is that when you get all the way to the bottom of the caverns and in the deepest part of the cavern, they turn off all the lights. That is terrifying to the depths of your soul, to be in darkness that dark. I think it's partly because it's so humid there, but it just, it, you can feel the darkness. It's oppressive. And David is saying, even there, it's like light to God. The deepest darkness cannot hide you. And I think he's intentionally drawing up this biblical metaphor of darkness being all that is evil, all that is broken, all that is disordered, all the deception of the world, even in the deepest darkness, God is still there. He will not abandon you in that darkness. Now, this may beg the question, and some of you might have been wondering, well, if God is fully everywhere, in every place in the universe, in all of his attributes, then what do we mean when we say that God is in heaven? Or what do we mean, what does the Son of God, Jesus, mean when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them? Well, that's bringing out a very common biblical idea that God focuses his presence in a special way in holy places. Places set apart for his people to meet with him. Those are holy places. God is a spirit. He's not confined by, space, by spaces, but he associates his presence with certain spaces for certain purposes. For instance, God was in the burning bush when he met with Moses. 
God was in the tabernacle when the smoke of his presence, the glory cloud of his presence entered into the tabernacle. God was in the holy of holies of the temple. God dwells by his spirit in the church. Yes, these are all true. But it does not deny the fact that he is present everywhere. It's just that in these places, he meets with his people in a special way. Solomon understood this when he built the temple. When he prayed his prayer of dedication in chapter 8 of 1 Kings, he says this. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house. God had designated that space as a space to meet with him, so to speak, face to face. Just as Moses met with God face to face at the top of Mount Sinai. God wasn't only there. But in his redeeming special purpose, he met with his people in these holy places. And that leads me to, again, deal with David's confidence in the light of God's all-searching knowledge of him and God's omnipresence, his, his inescapable presence in all aspects of his life and every place that he goes. How could he live with that? It's because God accepts us by grace and by grace alone. Look at David's conclusion to the whole psalm. Look at verses 23 and 24. Just skip to the end for a second. This is his prayer. In light of all that he has devotionally considered about this great doctrine, he ends it by saying, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's an amazing prayer. To say that he's not only comforted by God's all-searching knowledge of him and his presence with him, but he invites God, know me more deeply. Uncover every nook and cranny of my heart and my mind. Expose me, Lord. Instead of, like Adam and Eve, running from God because of their fear of exposure for their sin and guilt and shame, David says, expose my guilt. Show me my sin. You see, David understood that Messiah would come and once and for all deal with sin. He understood that because of God's covenant promises. Isaiah would later promise that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. That Messiah, when he came, would be the ultimate experience of God with us on earth. And of course, the fulfillment of that promise was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As the writer of Hebrews speaks of it in the beginning, the very beginning of the first chapter of his epistle, he says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. God became a man. The Son of God added to his divine nature a human nature, and he lived among us. He lived a perfect life. And then he offered up his perfect life as the Lamb of God, 
and bore the wrath that God intended initially for our sin, he laid that wrath upon his own son. And Jesus Christ bore the penalty, the debt that our sin deserved. He died in our place. And then God raised him from the dead, showing that God the Father accepted his willing sacrifice for our sins so that we would be reconciled to him, that we could be justified and adopted into his family, that God, this all-knowing, all-present God would be our loving Heavenly Father because of what Christ has done for us. And Jesus promised his disciples that he would not leave them as orphans, but he would come to them, that he would dwell with us, in us, that we would be in him and he would be in us in this wonderful, favorable way because of his work on the cross. And his last words to us on earth were these, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And that's why David Even though he lived long before Christ offered that sacrifice, he believed in the promise of that sacrifice. And so in spite of his great sin, he could contemplate that God knows him completely and is with him at all times and say to God, search me and know me, try me, test me, purify me, lead me in your ways. So there is great comfort in the doctrines of the omniscience and the omnipresence of God. And it's all because of Jesus Christ. Because of him that we can rejoice that we are known and that God is with us. How then should we live? What does it look like to live Coram Deo, before the face of God? To live in the continual awareness of that presence. And really that's what growth in faith is about. It's becoming more and more aware that God knows you completely and God is with you at all times. How, did, how would that change your life if you believe that more fully than you do today? First of all, you'll be a more prayerful person. You'll know that your prayers don't bounce off the ceiling when you pray. You'll know that he is there. And he knows not only what you're saying, but he knows your thoughts. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. And he wants to hear it. He wants fellowship with you. You'll become more prayerful. Secondly, you'll become more authentic. God knows you completely. This world is trying to get you to to be all about making up your own identity. But God knows you. God knows who you are. He knows who he created you to be. Once you understand that God knows you completely... You can stop putting on the masks. Stop pretending for other people. Stop hiding. Be who you are as God knows you. Because that's really the the identity that's important. Thirdly, if you really believe these things, you're going to be a more consistent disciple. You're going to be the same person at church as you are in the workplace. You're going to be the same person in the workplace you are in the classroom. You're going to be the same person in the classroom as you are in your living room. You're going to be the same person in your bedroom that you are in your living room. There'll be so much more wonderful consistency to your authentic discipleship in Christ. And then fourthly, you'll be increasingly holy. Because the more you're aware, not just that God is there in all of his holiness, but he's there in all of his mercy and love for you. It'll drive you to holiness. Holiness. 
That's what that awareness will do for you. You'll become a more holy person as you live Coram Deo. And then finally, you'll be a more secure person. You'll be a more secure person because you'll know that because of Jesus, we are never alone and he will never leave us and he will never, ever forsake us. He will hold us fast. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we get digging into the minutia of theology and biblical knowledge and all of that is good, but sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. Some of the most basic beliefs that we're taught as small children, things like that God knows us and he's always with us, sometimes we settle for a partial faith in these things. Forgive us for settling for a partial faith. Increase our faith. Increase our awareness of your presence with us and your knowledge of us, that we might enjoy the fruit of these blessings which Christ has accomplished for us at the cross. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.